Hello guys and welcome back to another installment of Galley Stories, Stories of the Bering Sea and Beyond. I am your host, Mark Kaler. And today we have with us Captain Frank Lupak. How are you today, Frank? I'm just good, Mark. How about yourself? Doing well, doing well. So let's uh, let's dive right in. Where were you born? And Well, I was born on the East Coast in Maryland, about 10 miles outside of Washington, D.C. Knew nothing about the fishing industry except for... Uh, a little sports fishing on the East Coast and some blue crab fishing, uh, sports fishing only. So in 1976, I moved to the West Coast uh, with my mom and uh, took up shop, graduated school in a little town outside of Seattle called Issaquah, Washington. Uh, graduated high school in 1977 and um, in 1978, Went back to the East Coast and went to a trade school for auto diesel mechanics. As that progressed, I decided to stay. I actually, where I went to school was in uh, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And I decided to stay for a year. So, so that was bump us into about 1970, late 78, I guess, 79. Decided to move back to Washington and had enough of Tennessee. On the way back from Tennessee, I was involved in an automobile accident in Springfield, Missouri. Totaled my car, had to take a bus back to Washington. Anyway, ended up back in Washington and uh, started looking for a job. Was living with my parents. Looking for a job at that point in time, a lot of the auto diesel industry was union. And it was uh, kind of tough to get into the unions. So I got offered a, uh, my, my folks had a friend that worked for East Point Seafood Company and they needed some grunt labor uh, working on their boats. So I took the job and worked on their boats. We were- uh, Like in the shipyard? In the shipyard, yeah. We were converting an old YF, Navy YF freighter from DC electric to AC electric. Uh, basically pulling wire out. So after that project came to springtime and it came time to load these tenders that were headed for Alaska to partake in the salmon fishery in Bristol Bay. We uh, started loading the tender and I was uh, offered a job by the captain to ride the tender up to Alaska and then I was going to get off the tender and work in the shore plant, or canneries as they were called back in that day. So I was looking for an adventure, and I took the job. We left sometime in May, early May, the beginning of May, late April. It took us 30 days to get to Bristol Bay. What? We were on an old tender traveling at five knots, wooden boat, <clears throat> loaded with freight, Stopped in every port possible, catch a can, went up through the inside passage, went across the Gulf of Alaska, stopped in Kodiak, worked our way down the South Peninsula, through False Pass, and up to Bristol Bay. Did you have problems, or it was just that slow that process? It was a slow boat to China. But they told you three days, or five days? No, 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 no. No, it was it was twenty five to be a while. yeah twenty five to thirty days. And then were you on a daily rate? It was on a daily rate, yes. 
Matter of fact, I think it was $75 a day. That was in 80? 1980. That wasn't bad. No, that was good money. Yeah. That was good money. Especially for somebody looking for work who couldn't find work for a few months. You must make it 35 days. Right. Yeah. Right. So we got to the Bay, and um, at that point, I guess I proved myself, and they asked me to stay on the boat. So I stayed for that summer and tendered. Uh, the captain's name was Floyd Poe, and he was a uh, <clears throat> captain. He worked uh, the oyster fields. He ran an oyster dredge down in uh, Nakata. Um, trying to think of the other name of the little town uh, off the off the southern coast of Washington so we tendered and and uh, I kind of was getting the gist of what these fishermen were doing and they were making some good money and our job is at tendering was to uh, to provide any service that the fishermen needed Back in those days, when the fishermen delivered, <clears throat> they delivered their catch, and then they'd tie up behind us, and we would either feed them breakfast, lunch, or dinner, depending on what time they delivered. They either they either did it or they didn't. A lot did, and a substantial amount did not. So, through that interaction with the fishermen, <clears throat> after seeing what was going on, I decided I wanted to go fishing. So long story short, we took the boat back to Seattle. I went another to, thirty days. <laughs> another thirty days south, correct. Uh, stopped about every place we could stop. Stop for weather. Stop for water. Stop for fuel. Uh, when we got back to Seattle, I stayed with the company East Point Seafoods. At that, uh, that's who it was back in the day. They had East Point Seafood Company and. Uh, Queen Fisheries was where the salmon fishery, that was the name of the salmon company. So I got back to Seattle and uh, they offered me a job to work in their um, mechanic shop where they rebuilt engines from the cannery and uh, processing equipment and, and things of the sort. So long story short, one day a fisherman came in who I knew, he was a really good fisherman, and he came in to borrow a tool. He happened to have a new boat that was built, and it was a fisherman's terminal. And it was his name was Jack Loman. Hungry Jack is what they called him. And I asked him for a job. And, of course, being a young kid, he told me, well, yeah, I'm probably going to look looking for a new crew. I'll get back to you. Well, after he told me that, I figured, well, I'd never talk to him again until the next summer well come about March or April well, I guess it was February or March um, he decided he was going to go herring fishing and he offered me a job to go herring fishing with him and his son uh, and then stay on the boat and, and fish salmon um, in the bay for Queen Fisheries and that's kind of where it all started um, we put in 225,000 pounds that summer, and I don't know, I fished with Jack probably seven or eight years until he retired. What was the name of that boat? The Hungry Jack 10. And how big was she? It was a 32-foot 
Bristol Bay boat. It was actually a Morphodite. It was a Mogitech. It was the first time they'd ever gone 14 feet wide. So it was 32 feet long and 14 feet wide. It didn't steer very well, but she packed a lot of fish. So I fished that boat, and then he decided to retire after the ones the after the last summer before he retired he actually uh had some health issues that i noticed he was always tired all the time well after that season he came home and uh they put a pacemaker in him his heart was functioning at about 50 percent of what it should have been so no wonder he was tired so now we're up to about, well, I did that with him for seven years. To get in the crab fishery, after two or three years of fishing with him, there was a lot of crab skippers up there that, that had boats. And uh, I kind of decided I wanted to try crab fishing. So this was about three years after starting with him, so you're 23, 24. Correct. And you're, you're looking Correct. for a way to make some money during the off-season of Bristol Bay during the winter time, or Correct. Okay. Correct. And I'd heard uh, some really impressive stories about uh, the king crab fishery, uh, the amount of money that was being made, the adventure. The vessels, to me, were pretty impressive. They were all, some of those were also tenders in Bristol Bay. So I came to Seattle and started beating the docks. Right over here? Over here, right over here at Fisherman's Terminal. By the way, that's where we are right now. <laughs> we're, right, we're right across the water, yeah. Right across the water. So I ended up landing a job <clears throat> on a boat called the Pacific Sun. And basically, the owner's name was Mira Mock. Mira hired me because he wanted some fabrication done on the boat, and it just so happened that I could weld. I never figured that out till we got to Alaska. But that year, we the uh, the first fishery we were involved in was St. Matthews Island, oh. which is up north of the Kriblov <laughs> Islands. Jeez. You couldn't go any further without learning a new language. <laughs> exactly, and I don't remember if it was that it was that first year. It so you just so, It just so happened we went on strike. And we were on strike sitting up at St. Matthew's Island with the whole fleet for about 10 days. 83, After, 84? 83. Yeah, I think, 84. I think it was 84. Uh, after the strike was over, um, we all went fishing and, and, uh, and then ended up back in Dutch Harbor. Were you doing blues? Blue crab. Yeah. And what was your average pot size back in 84? We fished six and a half. Six and a half feet by six and a half feet. And what was the count in the pot? A good a good pot. Oh, boy, I don't even remember. Oh, yeah. All I know is like we for went... for 17 years, you got it. In all I remember, the main thing I remember is we went for like four or five days straight with minimal sleep. I mean really minimal sleep. A couple hour nap on the galley floor, and that was it. Never even made it to the bunk. Never made it to the bunk. Um, when it was all said and done, I think we drifted for a whole day and, uh, the captain was sleeping. Everybody was sleeping. So it was nice weather, no worries. 
so from there, that's where my crab fishing career started. Um, and I stayed with Mira for a little while. And then I moved to another boat called the West Point. And at that, time, at that time, the West Point fished for East Point. So the <laughs> West Point was fishing for East Point Seafood Company. And a Norwegian guy ran that boat. His name was Vidar Stubaru. I think that was his name. Last name, anyway. And boy, was he hardcore. If there was a hard way to do something, he knew how to do it the hard way. <laughs> but back in that day, we didn't have... Uh, we didn't have cranes. We had a trolley that ran down the center of the boat. You had to pedal it? <laughs> didn't have to pedal the trolley. It was uh, it was uh, cable operated. Um, with a winch? Cable over hydraulics with yeah. a winch. Um, but it ran down the center of the boat, and, for some, and we had to get the pots to the outside edge of the boat, and we stacked the pots four wide on the stern. So what would transpire was the pot would be ha hanging from the trolley in the center of the boat and two guys would be on the stack of crab pots and you'd get that thing swinging until you couldn't get it swinging anymore and then the winch man on the outboard roll would let the winch down and hopefully the pot would hit the, de would hit the top of the stack and then you could tie it down. There were numerous occasions where everything wasn't in sync and the pot came back after you and uh boy we had to get the hell out of the way on that one and you were hoping you didn't step through the mesh on the crab pots uh, and, and get trapped in a position where you could possibly get hit by that pot so um on your toes on your toes the entire time on my toes so Fishing on the e, fishing on the West Point for East Point, um, that was a very lucrative job. As a matter of fact, uh, the guy that I was talking about, Jack Loman, um, he owned part of that boat. That was your first guy. The the first salmon Hungry fisherman, Jack. Hungry Jack, that I fished with. Um, but he didn't give me the job. I uh, like I said before, I started on another boat, and then once I proved myself, um, I guess. Well, I talked to the other skipper and, and got another job. And the reason I moved boats because it was a better boat. It was a boat built by Marco here in Seattle. Beautiful boats. The Pacific Sun was a bender built in uh, Louisiana or Alabama, wherever. And they were not, they were built for the Gulf Coast. Um, There's not, probably less than five of those running around still up there. And the ones that are up there have been sponsored, um, made wider. Yeah, they weren't uh, built for there. No. So let's see, West Point. Um, I don't know how many years I stayed on there. A handful of years, I guess. Um, and then there was another old-time fisherman in Bristol Bay, uh, Bjarni Hammer. And he owned the Northwind. It was another bender. And at that point in time, let's see, I think King Crab, I think it was closed. Or a very small season. Anyway, Bjarni called me and asked me if I wanted to go with him for a king crab season. And it was, he was running the boat and two of his 
nephews were on board, and basically all the guys on board, we were all together up in Bristol Bay. So it was kind of like a camaraderie deal. We all knew each other. We all were trying to be professional fishermen. And, so you were, uh, you're, you're jumping off of a Marco to go back to a vendor. Right, right. That was a decision in itself. Mm. And, uh, yeah, but, but uh, there was a few issues that happened on the, on the West Point. Um, Does that lead us back to how he did everything the hard way? Uh, yeah, you might say that was part of it. So anyway, I fished with Bjarni on the, on the North Wind, and uh, he was the kind of guy that was very low-key, good fisherman, but his motto was, boys, we got to let them soak. So we set the gear and let it soak. And we watched other vessels come through our area where we were fishing. And they would, uh, they'd had their gear set out and they'd haul them and stack them and move on. And we just stayed where we were. and, and Getting uh, some naps and having good meals. At and... the end of that season, I think, uh, I don't know, it was probably a week or 10-day season, and we all walked out of there with like 15 grand. So, weren't tired, weren't, uh, wasn't dangerous, although we did have a small fire on that during that season. Um, we had an, we had a fuel line loosened, and it got ignited on the, <clears throat> on a generator. It ignited, uh, on the exhaust manifold, and there was a small fire, and it caught a light fixture on board. Whenever there's a fire on the boat, uh, there's usually, especially if it's in the engine room, there's a lot of smoke, and uh, you just you don't know how bad it is. So we got all of our survival suits uh, laid out on the back deck, and we fired off a message to other vessels around. There was a couple guys standing by, and we ended up figuring out what it was and got it put out. Um, and, and finish that season so that particular job was only for that season so after that uh, this was kind of a depressed time in the crab fishery um, we're in the middle of the 80s now and the heydays were in the mid 70s to the late 70s that I didn't get a chance to get involved in because uh, I was still in high school but um, then another captain took over the West Point, and it's a guy by the name of Ron Sharon, and Ron and I knew each other, and Ron uh, offered me a job, so I, here I was back on the West Point. So I was back on the West Point, and we were fishing Opelio in the wintertime, long seasons, um, and I would fish crab through the winter and salmon through the summer. And, uh, Almost no time at home? No, we were working about nine months a year at that point in time. Um, wasn't married. Had lots of girlfriends uh, when I was home. So let's progress here. In about, I'd been with Ron for probably five or six years, <clears throat> maybe seven. Now we're moving to the 90s. We're into the 90s. And in 1993... Um, they offered me the boat for tendering. 
And just before that, I had bought myself a Bristol Bay Boat and Permit. I think sometime in 92. Maybe it was 93. No, I think it was 92. So I fished the bay. And uh, it did good. Um, and then in 93, they offered me to take the boat tendering after Bristol Bay. So sometime along 92, this, this, was a, this was a work in progress. Sometime in 92, they said if I wanted to take the boat, I'd have to go and sit for my license. I'd have to, I'd have to acquire a merchant marine license. Um, I think they wanted to make sure I was serious. Um, and if I had the dedication to get that done. Uh, so that's what I did. And I ended up with my mariner's license. Um, and then in 1993, um, let's see, 92, 93, somewhere around there, Ron got off the West Point and he bought into a boat called the Barber J. And it was on the Barber J that they offered me the boat for tendering. And that was a licensed vessel? That was, no, it's not a licensed vessel. They just well, wanted, not. they just wanted me to have a license, I think, is... To show the seriousness, right? Yep. It's kind of like going to college. I think if you uh, if you don't know what you want to do, and at least you dedicate your time and, and, and get a degree, then it, it shows that you're somewhat serious about what you're doing. So in '93, I fished the bay. We had a decent season, and then I'd fly from Bristol Bay to Anchorage, and then Anchorage to Sandpoint, Alaska, and that's where I met the Barber J, and we transfer skippers. Um, and I, I took over the Barber J. And you were I, on that boat when I met you. And when we you, met in 2013. Is it 2011 or 11? So, so yeah, that's that, that's uh, that's kind of where I was. So I would fish the bay, tender uh, the Barber J out of Sandpoint for 30 days, um, and then go home. And at that point in time, I think St. Matthews was closed. Maybe we did a few more years up at St. Matthews. Um, and, then it, and then it started, uh, the whole gambit started again in, in October. We started Red Crab on October 15th. It's been the uh, startup time for Red Crab season. And uh, we'd fish Red Crab. And then we'd fish Baird Eye, spent many a Thanksgiving at St. Paul Island um, because that was close to the Baird Eye grounds and, and uh, we'd be tied up behind the island or anchored behind the island if there was any weather, Thanksgiving. All right, so I want to I steer your story a little bit here because now we've pretty much covered every boat you've been on and what your jobs have been. but. So 17 solid years up in, up in Alaska, nine months at least out of the year. In that time, do you remember the first time you were really scared? There's really only been one time I was scared, and, and that was a storm that rolled through the Bering Sea. What boat were you on? I was on the Barber J. It was a storm that rolled through the Bering Sea, and it actually made the newspapers here in Seattle. Um, and one of the quotes out of the newspaper were waves like mountains. 
Um, when the tide came up against the wind, there was actually when the tide. Let me. When the tide came up against the wind, we had some waves that were big enough that before they crested, we actually backed down on those waves so that they wouldn't break on the house. Now this is a schooner vessel with the house aft, so we had 90 plus feet, 85 to 90 plus feet in front of us. We'd have to back down off those waves. Explain backing down on wave. Well, normally in, in a storm, when you're bucking into the weather, it means the weather's in front of you. Um, normally you just get a comfortable speed where you ride up the wave and down over the other side. And these waves were so big, we really couldn't uh, we really couldn't get a rhythm. You weren't getting to the top of that. No. It, and, and by the time we couldn't get over the wave before it was going to break. And when it was going to break, um, it was going to break on the house. Um, that was probably the worst weather I've ever seen. And it just so happens there were 13, I think it was 13. Imagine that, lucky number 13. I think there were 13 Maydays that day. Um, there were boats that were getting seawalls caved in on a turnaround to run with the weather. Um, there was gear breaking loose on deck. Um, it was utter mayhem for some guys in that situation. Um, we weathered it fine, but there was numerous times that I ducked below the console because I wasn't sure if the wave that broke on deck was going to come through the window. And keep in mind, we're probably 20 feet above the deck. So that's an already wave that's already broke. And that, that amount of water, that volume of water. If you um, had to guess how big these waves were. Oh, or could you? 25 to 30 feet, maybe bigger on occasion. Um, there was no rhythm to them, though. They were... Uh, they were one after another, after another, after another, until the tide came around, and the tide was running with the wind. Then, of course, everything came down. Um, so that was my worst experience. Um, as long as I've crab fished, I've never seen anybody get seriously, seriously hurt. Bumps, bruises, a uh, few serious lacerations. Um, but no loss of limbs. Um, we had a real good crew on that boat, the Barber J. When I was there, there was five guys that stuck together for probably I don't know six or seven years. And um, which is an eternity on a crab boat. I mean, you take a beating on those boats. Right, right. No, it it it's uh, of course dating myself, old school. Uh, back in the day, as we all say nowadays, um, there were some real dedicated individuals. Um, not that there's not dedicated individuals now, but um, the fishery has gotten easier with, uh, with hydraulics um, and not so much manual labor. A lot of... Uh, for instance, we have a table that slides underneath the launcher, and it's operated by a big hydraulic ram. 
when we first started, we sorted out of plastic totes. So you just dump it right into we the totes? We just dump it into the totes. and now Drag, before, drag before, the totes across the deck. Drag the totes across the deck. Try to keep them from, from moving around right by the hopper and sort the crab into the tank that way. <clears throat> Early on, they dumped the crab right on deck. So we've made a step forward from dumping them on deck to dumping them into something to sort out of. And then we got to the point where we started dumping them on a table. That would move up right beneath the, the pot. But the original, correct, but the original tables were called swing tables. So they had pins that kept them in place and you had to manually pull the pin and work with the roll of the boat and get the pin back in when you move the table and uh, hopefully the table didn't get away from you. Well, obviously the table got away a few times throughout my career. But no one ever got smashed, killed, or seriously hurt. And now present day we're up to hydraulics. So uh, it's push a lever to move the table. where under the launcher to sort the crab and then pull the table back away from the launcher. Um, so it's quite a bit safer. Um and speaking of safety, um, we went to rationalization, which is it used to be a free-for-all fishery. Fishing game would say, here's your quota. The gun would go off, and away we'd go no matter what the weather was. Now we all have individual quotas. Um, if the weather's too extreme, we don't need to go because we are guaranteed the quota that we have. Versus, if you're not out there fishing in the nastiest weather, that means someone else is catching your crab. Right. So rationalization certainly helped with safety. Rationalization has really helped with safety. Um, but on another note, the new breed of young fishermen has not helped on the safety issue. <laughs> they don't. Uh, they're a diff different breed of young men. Uh, of course, here we are in 2018. Um, I'm talking about stuff that's 30 years ago. Um, but, but the fishery has sustained itself. Um, there are still guys that want to do it. Actually, to tell you the truth, everybody wants to be a crab fisherman now since Deadliest Catch has come, uh, been on TV and, and, uh, everybody sees what it's like and, and it, it, it's a very adventurous uh, occupation. All right, so Frank, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to steer you a different direction here because we've we've gotten all up with the boats you've been on, your your scary experience, which was you know not not a good day at sea. But uh, during the course of your now 30 year career, there's got to be uh, some good times. Maybe that first purchase, that first big check, that first. That first explosion of the cash hitting the bank. What do you what do you got to share with that? Well, the first explosion of the cash hitting the bank was uh, uh, I made like twenty five grand salmon fishing in 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 the eighties, sometime in the eighties, and uh, yeah, it was bittersweet because I came home from Alaska, um, and ended up. Uh, Ended up wrapping a 72 Mustang Fastback around a telephone pole. Oh, my God. My dream car is a 69. 
So I wrapped that car around a telephone pole. Of course, we had alcohol in the car, and there was four of us in the car. I was driving. Um, we snapped off a tell. We hit a telephone pole. Snapped a telephone pole off. Nobody else was hurt except me. Um, I broke my femur. Of course, uh, the first thing we all knew what to do was uh, get rid of the beer. Get rid of the beer. So the ambulance drivers came and got me. Actually, my buddies pulled me out of the car to get me away from the car. Um, and off to uh, Overlake Hospital I went. Spent uh, probably 10 days, 7 to 10 days in traction. And then at that point in time, there was a uh, new operation where they didn't set your leg. They put a pin in it. So I opted to have the pin, and it stayed in for a year and a half, and out it came in a year and a half, and everything was fine. Um, and then back to fishing. Didn't lose, uh, didn't lose any time fishing. Uh, went back to fishing. Of course, needed a new car, so the Mustang wasn't good enough, so I bought a Corvette. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I had a running buddy at that time who worked for Boeing, and um, I was uh, the, I was his bad influence. Of course, when I'm home from fishing, I don't have to go to work on Monday, and uh, Rick Peterson, my running buddy, he worked for Boeing, and he was working on his career, and uh, we had season Seahawks, I had season Seahawks tickets at that time, and um, the games were on Sunday, and, and and we would make a day of it. We would start downtown at uh, at Harry's Bar and Grill. It was kind of one of the only places that served electric iced teas at the time. And we would start there, and then we'd go to the game. And, and then after the game, we'd end up out in Pioneer Square. And uh, I think Rick, because of me... Of course, he was a grown man, but because of me, I think Rick got written up a few times at Boeing. But he is still at Boeing to this day. Hey, Rick, good and, job. <laughs> and uh, he's in management, so... Um, Anybody uh, working for Rick, you know what you can get away with now. <laughs> that was uh, that was good times. What about your best day at sea? We heard about your worst. My best day at sea? Boy, there was a lot of good days. Um... Well, the best, probably the best days at sea were early on when we stored gear in the storage area, and uh, and of course when they when we stored gear, the, the the doors were supposed to be closed. I mean, open. Excuse me, no bait, and we were storing a hundred pots in the gear storage area, and it was real close to the king crab grounds, and and we would uh, nonchalantly bait a few pots. Whoops. It just it just kind of happened, yeah. and the and, and some of the fondest memories were, were were the years that we came back to pick up our stored gear, um, and there was crab there. So <laughs> all we'd do is pick up was pick the pots up and, and bait the ones that weren't baited and set them back, and and it always seemed to uh, it always seemed to work out. Um, but as far as as far as best days, king crab that was, was the best. a lot of years ago. Yeah, yeah. 
King, king crab's the best fishery. It's one everybody wants to make because it's where we all started. Um, well, Pelio were just coming into play um, as far as a, uh, a product to be caught and sold. Um, what, what's your what's your favorite tasting crab? My favorite crab is bear dye. So mine is too. That's it's, me and Steph. Uh, yeah. It is uh, the sweetest. Um, it's bigger than an opilio, which is a snow crab. You don't have to work so hard to get the meat. Um, but king crab is king crab is the ultimate too. It is king crab, uh, but a little bit of king crab goes a long way for me. Um, nothing better than a pile of bear dye and a twelve pack of beer. Damn right. Uh, that's. Uh, so what, what's your suggestion for young guys trying to get in now? Uh, trying to get in now is uh, is to be dedicated. Be dedicated and, and don't expect any recognition. Um, maybe, maybe start somewhere else. I mean, right? Processing plants, on the docks. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it's hard to walk into a king crab job right now. I mean, it's hard to. Well, I don't know about this year. It might be pretty easy this year <laughs> because the quota is so <laughs> low. But I... In the day and age where we where we are now, I kind of feel like I've come full circle because um, when I started to try to find a job, uh, even in 1982 when I landed my first crab job, it wasn't that easy. But um, the cycle was on a downhill slide, and guys that were had in the past had made big money were deciding that uh, they didn't want to make. Uh, they were used to making what they were making and and felt they deserved those big checks um and of course things things toned down um and that opened it up for new people to get into the industry uh which was a plus for me now um it's hard to find it's a downturn again it's a downturn again um which opens the door but what i was going to say was um when when you when you get a crew and you have the camaraderie. It's just, it's just like a ball team. Uh, the captain's the coach. You're the players. Um, you have a good captain. You have a good crew. Uh, it just uh, makes life a whole lot easier. Um, makes the job fun. And uh, you tend to stick together. And it, it the camaraderie is really an important thing on boats, I think. Mm-hmm. Um start to learn the other guys and know what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. And yeah, you you know, you end up knowing more about your shipmates um, than, yeah, I mean, you, you, you get their life experiences, their personal experiences, their personal problems, D, all the above. Um, and nobody's there to judge. Uh, we're all just there to listen. And and, and, and during those long runs between strings or short runs between strings, um, the boys all huddle together and and, uh, and try to solve the world problems. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, we're about out of time here, Frank. Uh, before we go, though, was there anything you want to share with us or anything you feel like you need to say? No, I think I've summed it all up. You got it all worked out. <laughs> done, done the best that I could do. Uh, before we go, uh, we'll encourage everybody listening to, of course, buy Wild Alaska Seafood. Uh, if you can't buy Wild Alaska Seafood, buy Wild Seafood. None of that uh, farm stuff, except for catfish, I think. Catfish might be the only exception. 
Stay away from the tilapia. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had a lot of guys say that. But really, catfish, though. You can't... Catfish there's no, is... There's no uh, commercial fishery for catfish, and they're doing it the right way. No, catfish, I think, is... is, is uh, I, I think they feed those catfish... I think they know what they feed those catfish. I mean, we know what they feed the uh, uh, the farm salmon, but it's not it's not good stuff. It's well, it's not, not what they're going to eat in the wild. Right, exactly. And uh, but yeah, I think catfish you have any catfish you're going to order has been farmed. There's no commercial fishery for a catfish. So if you're taking a look at the fish counter, and you are, and you're going to save a buck a pound or two bucks a pound on Atlantic farmed salmon or Atlantic salmon because all Atlantic salmon I think 97% of it's farmed uh, do yourself a favor and buy wild fish yeah wild fish wild crab there you go uh, a crab of course has got to be Alaska caught unless d- dungies of course yeah. right alright guys with that we're going to end this one and uh, Frank thanks for joining us today thanks for having me Mark we really appreciate having you and guys we will uh, see oh before I say that uh, follow us on Facebook if you would, and maybe give a comment or two, or you know, even a like or a share. And uh, we will see you next time. <laughs>